welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We return to our study of the kings and prophets of Israel and Judah. The death of King Ahab has brought little change to Israel other than to make it weaker, but right now, the focus is not on the king, but on the prophet Elisha. But before we pick up his story in 2 Kings chapter 2, first we're going to touch base with the book of Deuteronomy. This is uh, from Deuteronomy 27. And God commanded through Moses, said, When you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build just an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall sacrifice peace offerings. shall eat there. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day. And that day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali, and the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. And so the picture is, the commandment is, as soon as you get across the river, and you've got the, your enemies have been put aside so that you, you are, you are secure enough to do this, you are to stage the following ceremony. You're going to build an altar on Mount Ebal and you're going to offer sacrifices. You're going to write the words of the law on, that, on the plaster that you put over the stones. You're going to write that down so everybody knows. And this is what this is about. This is the sacrifice that you're going to be offering to the Lord. And then you're going to put half of the tribes on Mount Gerizim. And those tribes shall speak the blessing. And you're going to put the other half of the tribes on Mount Ebal. And those tribes are going to speak the curse. The blessing and the curse are not separable. So it's not that these are the tribes that are going to be blessed and these are the tribes that are going to be cursed. It's one people, one nation. But some of you are going to be given the responsibility of speaking the blessing. The others of you are going to be responsible for speaking the curse. And it lays out a number of curses. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Okay, that amen means you're in full agreement with this. From your heart and soul and with all your mind and strength, you are in agreement with the law of the Lord and the curse of God falls upon anyone who commits this act. Cursed, and all these curses are put upon those It seems at random, but it's not really at random. It is a selection of violations of the law. 
Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall answer and say, what? Amen. Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Cursed on that person. Cursed be that person who cheats his neighbor by trying to shift the boundary. That's how serious God takes that whole issue. Curse on them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Cursed be anyone who, uh, who misleads a blind man on the road. <clears throat> Cursed be that man. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now when the people are saying Amen to this, they said to me, Yeah, God, we agree. That person deserves a curse. Now when the person comes under a curse, and I'm not going to read them all for you, but chapter 28 then contains blessings of obedience and then the curses that come upon the people for disobedience under the covenant. Under the covenant of law. The covenant of law is a covenant of blessing and of cursing. And the blessings and the curses are not inseparable. Do this and you shall live. Disobey. Go your own way. Follow the idols. And you fall under the curse. And that, those are the ways of death. By the way, the passage on blessing is from verse in chapter 28, verse 1 through 14. The passage on cursing for disobedience is verses 15 through 68. Three times more verses on the passage of curses than on the passage of blessing. That tell you something. Not that there's more, there's more curse than there is blessing. But emphasizing what we don't want to hear. And that is our disobedience brings upon us a curse even as our obedience brings a blessing. I'm bringing that up to you because if we understand the context of what's going on, we will not have the problems that most modern people have when they read this passage of Scripture. We are in 1 Kings... Okay, I've got to shift my mark here. Excuse me, 2 Kings, thank you. Because my Bible opened up to 1 Kings because that's where I happened to have the marker in this particular Bible. It was not moved yet. Uh, no curse upon moving this kind of a landmark. Okay. <laughs> Elijah has gone up into heaven in a whirlwind of fire. The... Uh, scripture is at one time unambiguous and yet not extremely specific. The Hebrew word that is used is taken up. He was taken up. In this he becomes a type of Christ who after his resurrection ascended into heaven. And he also becomes a type of the rapture, when in in uh, First Thessalonians, Paul uses the phrase to be caught up. Of those who are alive, 
at the return of Jesus. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And uh, the word rapture, by the way, where does the word rapture occur? Well, the word rapture is a synonym for the term caught up. So that's where that comes from. Okay. So Elisha has come back down. He has crossed the river. Or he hasn't crossed the river yet. We, we hadn't crossed the river with Elisha yet when we last left him. I'm trying to... Okay, here we are. We've got our bearings. Elijah has been caught up into heaven. Elisha speaks words. How can you, how can you comprehend what Elisha... I don't, I don't, I'm not sure we can comprehend what Elisha is feeling right now. It's got to be a combination of grief awe and exhilaration all at the same time and I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure how a human soul can handle all of that all at the same time but here's Elisha the man that he has served for the last few years the man that he has been the diligent servant of and has done everything at his bidding. He has been his messenger. He has been his butler. He has been his uh, uh, personal attendant. He's been, he has done errands for him. And he, he's, he's been his servant. <coughs> this man has been taken up from him in a supernatural way. And he calls out, my father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel. And those, those two words first, my father, my father, that, that's a very significant thing. Elisha had a father, a natural father. And he, he left his old life behind. And Elijah had become to him his spiritual father. And the horses and chariots of Israel... We get a glimpse here. This is, he wasn't talking about the horses and chariots that carried him up into heaven. He was talking about Elijah. It's the horses and chariots of Israel. This is the man who's really <coughs> kept Israel alive. This is the man who's defended Israel. This is the man who has been the front line of the spiritual warfare. And Satan, who has, who has tried to destroy the work of God in Israel in order to interrupt the plan, God's plan of salvation and to prevent, if he can, the coming of the Savior and the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Eve and to Noah and to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to Moses and to David. And Satan, if he can turn Israel away from Yahweh and to Baal and turn God's own people from that, and if Israel falls, it's only a matter of time until Judah falls to that. And if Satan can turn that nation away from God and to Baal, and what do we mean by Baal? Basically, we're talking about... All of the religions of the Middle East at this time basically 
had one template. They were, there were hundreds of them. Maybe even thousands of them. But there were, we know, I mean, we can name every nation of that age had its own Baal, had its own Lord. Had its, but this mythology, the pattern of worship, the, the, the similarities are all over the place. They were just, they, it was just a, there was just a common thread. Basically, when we're talking about Baalism, we're talking about humanism. The Baalism that's most popular in the current day is secular humanism. That is humanism without a mythology other than Darwinism, which is the new mythology for secular humanism. You're welcome. That was for free. No charge. Mm -hmm. charge. Satan can turn Israel to reject the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh will have no choice but to destroy them and start all over. As he threatened to do in the wilderness with Moses. As he had to do in the days of Noah. Elijah. Israel's one man army. They didn't even know. And here in the days of Elijah. We, you know we sing about these are the days of In the days of Elijah. The unseen spiritual warfare breaks out visibly on earth. And you see this at key times in the salvation history throughout the Bible. That at key times, the spiritual warfare breaks out. Most significantly, that spiritual warfare broke out and became visible. And the demonic and the satanic became more visible because of the, its exposure by the light of the presence of Jesus Christ. That's when it really becomes clear and explicit who Satan is and what he's been trying to do all along. But Elijah's been Israel's one-man army. It's not that he's the only guy. God corrected that. Elijah got to thinking, I'm the only one. And God said, no, you're not the only one. And I'll, we'll take care of that. We'll take care of that feeling. And the first thing that Elijah did under the command of God was to go and select out Elisha to come and join him and then they began and in the next several years Elijah's ministry didn't exactly go underground but it was not that it was not that spectacular kind of thing that 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 show it where he comes before the king and stands before the king every every time something comes up no Elijah is not making headlines for the next several years he's going around and he's starting seminaries he is going around and gathering those who have a call of God upon their lives and showing them how to determine whether, whether they are prophets or not, whether God has given them a word to speak or not, and how to take that word and how to speak it, how to hear God and how to speak, from, and how to speak for God. And he begins to build clusters of that and, and on his way to being taken up, he goes around and he visits three of those schools. For those, I, I call them schools. I mean, that's an informal sense. They're they're a gathering. They're, it, it's it's a congregation and fellowship as much as it is uh, a place of learning. So he goes and he visits the the sons of the prophets. Is what they're called. 
So he goes and visits them and goes on their way. So Elisha now, he, Elisha has been the servant of Elijah in these days and he goes and he watches his master go up into heaven and, he, and in grief he tears his clothes. That's the conventional signal of the sign of grief to, to tear your clothes. And why tear the clothes? Well, you know, you just don't go out and, and get a, pair, a set of new clothes right off the rack. Uh, clothes are a precious thing. When you tear your clothes, that means this, that's a sign this part of my life is over. Among other things, I mean, it's a there. There's a, an act there. It requires an expense, uh, expenditure of of strength and a, and a and a purpose. And yet, you know, there's there. It's there's a mindlessness, but it, it's a way to to give vent to pent up sorrow and grief. But it also there's a signal. There's a symbolism there. This part of my life is over. These clothes are no longer worthwhile. These clothes, I can't use these anymore. I can't wear these anymore. I've got to go on into something else. I've got to go on to a new part of my life. And he looks around. And there is the mantle of Elijah left for him. And he takes it and he puts it around his shoulders. I wonder how heavy it felt at that point. Then he walks back to the place where they crossed the Jordan. You remember how Elijah crossed the Jordan? Elijah had taken that mantle and rolled it up into a roll and taken it and slapped the water with it. The water went, <laughs> and they walked across on dry ground. Elisha comes out, and what does he have? Do you think it's easy to believe in God when you're a prophet? no easier than it is to believe in God if you're not a prophet. It's a little bit harder. Because you've got this knowledge that God is giving you a word, but you've got everything in your flesh that says that can't be right. And he comes back across and he stands at the water's edge. What is he feeling? What is he thinking? He knows because he had asked, let me have a double portion of your spirit. By which, remember, he did not mean let me have twice as much as what you had. Although, let me tell you an ironic fact. Footnote, there are twice as many miracles of Elisha that are recorded as of Elijah. Just a little note. But what that meant was, let me have a double portion of your spirit. That means, let me take your place. And Elijah's word back to him basically was, that's not my call. <laughs> I'll do what I can. I'll put a good word for you. And if you're still here, I mean, it's kind of like all along the way, Elijah gave him an, an, an Elijah basically is saying, you really want this? <coughs> He makes Elisha count the cost. As Jesus required his disciples to count the cost, Elijah makes his Elisha count the cost. Do you know what it's going to be like, Jesus said, to follow me? You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Elisha basically is giving Eli Elijah is giving Elisha the same opportunity. Count the cost. Make sure you're really going to take this up because this is not an easy thing. You can go back to private life and you can retire and nobody will think the worst of you. 
How difficult is this? Let me just shoot forward ahead and project a little bit. Elijah is going to have his own servant, his own picked guy, one of the top students of the class, the, probably the top student of the class. We even know his name, Gehazi. We don't know Gehazi as a prophet. We know him as a washout. We'll get there. It's not an easy thing to do this. So Elijah gives him every opportunity to back out. But when Elijah is taken up, Elisha is still there. And Elijah, Elijah had told him, if you're still here when I'm taken up, you'll have what, what you've asked for. But he didn't feel any different. The only thing that was different is that Elijah is gone and his mantle, his cloak, is still here. And that cloak is now mine by right of inheritance. Mm -hmm. So he takes his cloak. It's not that the cloak has any supernatural power. It doesn't. We, I mean, we, we live in such a superstitious age, and they were superstitious in those days too. And there are people who would, who would want to come and touch the cloak, pray to the cloak, make a shrine of the cloak. No. But Elisha does what he saw his master do. He rolls it up. And he looks up into heaven... And he prays this strange prayer. Where is the God of Elijah? I love that. <coughs> I remember Jack Taylor telling a lady who was saying, well, I, I, I'm, I want to follow the Lord, but I'm just afraid to go out on a limb. And Jack Taylor said, Honey, don't you know that if you go out on a limb with Jesus, the tree will fall before you do. The tree may fall, that limb's going to stay up there. But you don't know that until you do it. And he rolls up that cloak. He says, Where is the God of Elijah? And he strikes the water with it slaps the water with the cloak just as his master had done and you, there are 50 sons of the prophets on the other side of the, of the river over there the other, the other river bank they're watching this and they had seen Elijah go over and Elisha with them and now they see Elisha coming back alone they knew him but then they saw Elijah Elisha slap the water the way Elijah had and walk across and they're like Whoa. You know, Elisha doesn't make a big deal about it. Comes on in, goes in. What's for supper? I don't understand that yeah. prayer. What's it? Did you say, where is the Lord? The where, is, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? It tells us something of, Elisha, of Elisha's frame of mind. Basically, it is saying... He is praying for God to do in him what he did through Elijah. He is acclaiming the same God who is the God of Elijah is my God. That's the God I believe in. But he's going out and he's saying, God, I'm out here. You are invisible. I am not. Those guys are watching me. 
They're looking to see whether you've put your anointing on me. Are you going to back me up? That's an inquiry as much as it is a request. And it indicates to me, it gives us a glimpse into the mind of a prophet. We think everything so, and this is my point, we think everything is so easy. Well, he was a prophet. He knew what God was going to do. He knew what God was saying. Not until he steps out and does it. You've got to have faith. And Elisha, Elisha begins at this point, and he demonstrates a faith, and it's something to Elisha, to Elisha's credit, he never backs away. And this is one thing we find out about Elisha, who, that, may, that he's the same thing. He continues Elijah's ministry. Elijah was done. But when Elisha comes in, everything, nothing... God's work does not miss a beat. And Elijah's ministry continues with Elisha. And that's what the double portion is. But he said, God, show me. Show me if you're here. And then he does something very... He, his words seem almost doubting. But then he does... What does he do? Does something very audacious. Just what the prophet did. And God answers him. So that's, that's what's going on here. Elisha, in other words, is not being presumptuous. Saying, God, show me that this is your calling on my life. Show me. Because what, is Elijah, what was Elijah's ministry? It was for the living God. Elisha now is taking up that, that ministry. So he goes on a cross. And so there are three signals that come next in the, in the story and in the remaining part of chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 so uh, let's see if we can get through chapter 3 this morning now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha they acknowledged that in my mind that question is as much for those guys across the river that's a good word too that, that question where is the God of Elijah because they undoubtedly heard him say that water carries across the water you know and even you know we don't have a rushing Jordan River at this point but uh, the water you know they heard him say that where is that so the, his words and, then, and to also reinforce this thing all these things so now when the sons of the prophets who were, so they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. I mean they knew that. They saw this. Said, He's our new professor. <laughs> the mantle has been passed. And they bowed to the ground before him. Now that's significant considering what comes next. They said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Let them go seek your master. It may be the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. Let us go. We've got fifty guys who are ready to go out and, and, and look for Elijah. And Elisha says, No. Why? Elisha knows you're not going to find him. He's not there. 
God has taken him. He's not there. You remember the story of Enoch? Enoch walked with God. God took him. Wasn't there. You remember the story of Moses? Moses went up to Mount Nebo. He died, but God buried him. And there are other stories that God accumulated with it that are referred to elsewhere, that are referred to in the New Testament about <coughs> Satan contending with, with Michael, the archangel, for the body of Moses. And Michael saying, I'm not going to mess with you. The Lord rebuke you. And so, you know, that, that goes, so we've got all, say, they never found Moses. They certainly never found, you're not going to find Elijah. But they said, well, we've got we to know. We've got to know. And in their mind, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're thinking, I don't think that they're thinking that Elijah is still alive somewhere, although you know, uh, on this earth. I don't think they, but they may have. They may thought, well, you know, well, I mean, we, if, we've, we've got to find out. We've, they just couldn't let it go. And if, he's, and if his body is out there, we don't want just the buzzards to get him. So, did God bury Moses? Yes. Well, well I mean, but Elijah, yeah, we've got to know. And so they nagged him. They did. They nagged him. They put, and finally, Elijah, it says, he became ashamed. That's another way of saying, what's with you? Okay. Go ahead and go look. It's not like it's against the law for you to go look, but just get out of here. Leave me alone. Well, then they honored their ancestors and their prophets and stuff. Oh, yeah. God had to have taken Elijah because if they wanted his bones that badly, they would have worshipped the bones instead of God. And you've got to understand also, by this time, there are these these people, these men, know the difference that they, between them and their culture. Their culture has been going this way, and they have been taken with the truth of God, and they are going this way against the culture. And Elijah was very high for them. They recognized that the spirit of Elijah rested on Elisha. They weren't dishonoring Elisha. They weren't doubting Elisha's story. But they had to find out for themselves. They were like Thomas. Who, he said, I can't believe this until, I mean, you guys, this is all great for you. You saw Jesus. I wasn't there. I need to see him too. And actually, he really he did. <laughs> and that's, it was, that became part of the resurrection testimony of the Lord. And so all of this, so, yeah, they, so then they go back, and then they come back and say, he didn't, couldn't find him. And Elisha said, Duh. <laughs> And they came back. Now, where are they staying? They're staying in Jericho. Now you remember Jericho. Jericho was a waste until it was rebuilt by a developer who was sponsored by King Jeroboam. And the prophet who had pronounced, who, uh, a prophet came and spoke a curse on whoever, re, well, just reminded them of the curse of Joshua that was on those who had rebuilt uh, Joshua had put a curse on anyone who rebuilt Jericho. And the prophet came and cursed Jeroboam and Jeroboam's uh, golden calves at Bethel. 
And but Jeroboam went ahead and hired a developer. This is too good a plot of land to let go, and they rebuilt Jericho. And the man who rebuilt Jericho rebuilt it and made a lot of good money on it, I'm sure, and also lost his sons. That was the price he paid. Jericho was a city that was under a what? Curse. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Oh, the the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Now it doesn't say so explicitly in the text, but it... All of this other has been told to us. I mean, the, the writer of Kings wants us to say, you know this. You understand why. They don't have a good water source. At Jericho, the water source <coughs> is polluted. The water sor- source is unusable. And not only does it poison people, it poisons the land. We can't grow anything with this water. The land is great. The water's terrible. He said, bring me a new bowl. Put salt in it. A new bowl. Something that nobody has had a chance to use for any other possible purpose that might be unholy. Bring me a new bowl. Why? God's doing a new thing. Put salt in it. Now, you usually don't think of salt in water as being something that makes it drinkable, right? Or put it on plants and make them grow. But all of this is pure symbolism because salt in this, place, in this case is something that will render it set apart to God for a sacrifice. The water, the, the salt becomes a healer. The salt becomes a medicinal symbol. It's not the salt that's going to do the work. So he went to the spring of water and and threw salt in it and says, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water's been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. So if you go to the Holy Land today and go and are able to drink the water from Jericho's spring water source, you're drinking water that Elisha, by the word of the Lord, healed. What is being done here? Elisha, whose name means my God saves. Just like Joshua, whose name meant Jehovah saves. Elisha, whose name means my God saves, is coming. And he is... What is he showing us about the intent of God? Was Jericho a blessed city? Jericho was a city that was under the curse of God. And Elisha is coming, and what is he doing? He's lifting the curse. He's undoing the curse. What does that tell us about the attitude of God toward his people? He can heal them. 
come to me and I will heal you. I will show grace to you. God is not your enemy. He is your friend. And he has come and to undo the curse and to take something that was bitter and to make it sweet. To turn something that was unhealthy and to make it beneficial. The same thing happened with the crucifixion. To be put on the cross with the cross was a curse. Keep all that in mind and the attitude of God in mind as you get to the next story. And this is the one that gives people problems. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel and there he returned to Samaria. So, <coughs> what have we just seen Elisha do? Lifting a curse. What in this passage do we see Elisha do? Invoking the curse. On small boys. Okay, these aren't, these aren't young men. These are small boys. These are young boys. What I figure, I guess we'd call it, when I was in Sunday school, we called them juniors. Y'all remember that, juniors? They come out, and there's a gang of them. I mean, obviously... This is a large congregation of boys. That's weird. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got some gang characteristics of some very young kids. But they are kids. Where do they live? Where do they live? What city is this? Is that Bethel? Bethel. Now what's been going on at Bethel? What is Bethel significant for at this particular time? <coughs> this is the center. This is the center of the idolatrous worship that was begun by Jeroboam. For whom every king in Israel who continued to support this mode of worship was pronounced evil in the sight of the Lord by the writer of Kings. Every one of them was a stinker as far as this goes. If he did nothing else wrong, he kept this thing going because it was an abomination to God. What was the first curse of those that we read from Deuteronomy? It was on the curse of on anyone who made a graven image. Is God serious about all of this? Remember we are in the context of blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing is how the covenant worked out, but it is also the emblem of the spiritual warfare that's going on that is unseen. And cursing in the name of the Lord is a weapon of spiritual warfare. 
as practiced particularly by the Old Testament prophets and practiced by Elisha. There is a spiritual warfare going on here that is more significant even than the, than the physical warfare. Now, was Elisha threatened? Very likely. There was, there was of course, jeering going on here and they, they, were, they were verbally abusing him. Now what, okay, let's talk about this, go on up you bald head. Now what does that mean? Exactly, we're not sure what the connection was. There are some who speculated that his baldness was not natural baldness, but something that he, re, something that he experienced as a collateral result of, of being close to the fire that took up Elijah into heaven. I don't know about that. That's kind of speculative. He was not an old man, by the way. This is not if his baldness if this is indeed a physical characteristic is not a relationship to his age he lived 50 years after this he was uh, you know so his baldness it may he may have stood in very stark contrast to Elijah who quite likely was a Nazarite who never cut his hair and that when it refers to they were talking to him and trying to describe Elijah to Azariah in back in chapter 1 they referred to him as uh, a man the best translation is that you know he wore a garment of hair but that could be translated you know that really hairy guy so they there's so you could see a very strong contrast between this bald-headed fellow and this big really hairy guy you know so when they say go on but the reference go up is very definitely a reference the word has gotten out that Elijah was taken up into heaven and what do you suppose the talking heads on the uh, uh, the equivalent of the talking heads on Israelite TV how they would have been treating that whole story why they'd be mocking it the absurdity of all of this, you know, here's, here's this prophet who goes out in the wilderness and disappears and then Elijah, this, his servant comes back and suspiciously wears his own, you know, his garment and, and you know, raising all kinds of, you know, unfounded suspicions and all, you know, just, you know how the, how the gossip mill works and how, and you also understand, you know, you've seen it, you've heard it, how skeptics think about the Word of God, how skeptics think about miracle stories, how skeptics look at all of these things and just regard it as being absolutely absurd, absolutely ridiculous. And these children have heard it all. And they are going out and they are reflecting everything that they've heard in their homes and they've gotten together and they've skipped school that day and they've decided to go out and meet Elisha face to face and uh, to make fun of him and to throw verbal rocks at him and maybe even to start throwing real rocks at him. Who knows? You know how boys are. So when they say, go on up, you bald head, say, your master went up, why don't you go up? Get out of here. Leave us. Leave us alone. Go, you know. But, but, and, uh, now, understand, when you blaspheme the prophet of God, you're blaspheming God. 
Jesus made that very clear to his disciples. When you go in my name, you're representing me. And whoever ever does any you any kindness in my name is doing it to me. And whoever does anything against you is doing it to me. The prophets, the prophet is the representative of God. And when you, when you jeer the prophet, you are blaspheming God. And Elisha turns, and all in the world he does is invoke the curse which is already upon the city, already upon those every family, already upon everyone there. He invokes the curse of God upon them. And what does he actually do? What does Elisha do? He curses them in the name of the Lord. He says, may the curse of God be upon you. May the curse of Yahweh be upon you. May the curse of the law be upon you. He is invoking the judgment. He is invoking a judgment now rather than one to come. And then what happens next? Two. It specifies two. Two she-bears. Now, what, what causes she-bears to attack? They're protecting their youngins. It says there were two. How many boys did they maul? That's also specified. I think it's interesting how specific this particular story is. And it doesn't say whether the bears mauled all that were there. So I wonder how the news... How that news traveled around. Exactly. Yeah, but here's the thing. Those bears moved awful fast or those boys moved awful slow. (laughs) Because all of these boys were mauled by just two bears. There, there's some there's some mystery about that, and I'm not gonna, I, I'm not all sure what it all means, but I'm I'm pointing out to you that this, what has taken place is a covenant event. This is a an event that is under the law of God. The violation has been of the law of God, and who is responsible for it? The people of Bethel, and what do they pay? They pay the lives of their children. God has come and he has blessed a place that is cursed. But when those people come out from the place that is cursed to curse the prophet, there is no blessing for them. And there's no forgiveness either. But then he goes on. Chapter 3. There are so many twists and turns in this story. There are more twists and turns in this story than there are in a Stephen King novel. 
let's see what we can get into it. Let's see how far we can get before we just get stopped. 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. They'll say, now we've got a flashback. We've already been told about Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat's passing, but now we've got a flashback. 18th year of Jehoshaphat. These are in the later days of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though he's not like his father and mother. He, he did put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He didn't depart from it. So he still stunk, but he just didn't stink nearly as bad as his father did. Okay. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. He had, he had to deliver the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 lambs. When Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So king of Jehoram marched out of Samaria. At that time, mustered all Israel. He went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I'll go. I'm as you are. My people are as my people. My horses is your horses. And so we've got Jehoshaphat behaving the same way he's always wanting to reach out to the northern kingdom and do that he reached out to Ahab got kind of rebuked for it apparently didn't learn his lesson from that because he says okay yeah I, I need your help now Moab was a vassal state to Israel Edom was a vassal state to Jehoshaphat let me point out one of these ironies to you Jehoram, son of Ahab, wicked, disobedient king, loses the vassal state. He's going to lose. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you in advance of it. He's going to end up losing Moab. Edom remains a vassal state under Jehoshaphat, a righteous king. Both of these kingdoms were conquered by David. Moab stayed on the line up to this point. Edom Israel, Edom's going to stay Israel's va or Judah's vassal state and, and pay tribute to Judah through this time. But when Jehoshaphat's son, who is not righteous, takes over, Judah loses Edom. This is a time when God is beginning to strip away one blessing after another. They can't see what's going on. They don't understand that, the, that they have lived a protected life and that God is removing one layer of blessing that he had given them over another because of the curse that is on the land because of the idolatry. They don't see the connection. We don't either. We, we're always misinterpreting what God is doing. We can't see that we might, I might be doing something wrong that's caused, it must be the, if God's doing something, it's because they're doing something wrong. It's not my fault, it's their fault. God's just turned against us, you know, it's just all of this going on. Okay, so Jehoshaphat says, okay, yeah, we'll go with it. Now, here's an interesting thing. And before going out to war with Ahab, Jehoshaphat called for a prophet. Let's get to see if we can get a word from God on this. Don't see Jehoshaphat doing that at this point. So just, just do this. And in return, Jehoram says, I'll let you plan the strategy. Which way do you want to go? Now, there were two ways to invade Moab. One of them was the easy way that was north of the Dead Sea. Take that route north of the Dead Sea, but you're going to have to bypass Jabesh Gilead, which despite Ahab's campaign, still belongs to the Syrians. So we've got to go past there, and so we've got to deal with the Syrians. 
And then also, since this is the easier way to get through, obviously this is the way that Moab has fortified. They are going to be waiting for an attack here. And so that's the way. The other way was through the desert of Edom. Now Edom is not exactly an ally, but it's a vassal state. It's under the control of Judah. And so there's, you know, we don't have to worry about the Edomites interrupting our flow. The only problem is it's over mountains and through desert. It's not an easy way to go. It's a militarily shrewd move for Jehoshaphat to say, let's go the south route. They won't be expecting us there. Militarily shrewd, but logistically difficult. And all of those logistic difficulties come to pass and they run out of water before they get halfway there. They get, from, they get across the mountains, they get to the plain, they run out of water. And then they start arguing with each other. Finally, Jehoshaphat calls for a prophet. Verse 11, Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elijah, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Notice how that's called. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. I was telling you, Elijah was, Elisha was Elijah's servant. That literally, that's the servant's job. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. Of Elijah. But this, and now he is elevated to his spot. So, Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went down with him. Elijah, Elisha comes up and says, First of all, he takes one look over at Jehoram. He says, I don't even know why I'm here standing in front of you. If it weren't for the presence of Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even talk to you. <laughs> so he shows the same kind of easygoing tolerance that Elijah had. Say, go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. King of Israel said to him, No, it's Yahweh who's called these things to get three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Look at what he's done. He calls and he says, No, God's to blame for this. This debacle is God's doing. God has brought us here to defeat us. God has brought us here to destroy all of us. Jehoshaphat there worships the Lord. He worships Yahweh. Jehoram has just slandered Yahweh. Whose idea was this to go? Jehoram's. Who is he blaming for it? It's Yahweh's fault. Yahweh always does this. He did this to my father. He brought us together to, to go and, and so he could get my father killed out in battle and now he's brought us here to kill all of us. At this point, Elisha is ready, I think, just to spit and walk out of the room. But instead, God gives him a word. Verse 14 is, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I, wouldn't even look, I would not look at you nor see you. Bring me a musician. <laughs> 
I need to hear some music. <laughs> I, need to, I need to get out of this place mentally. I need to get out of this, this place. I need somebody to praise, play some praises right now. Because <laughs> right now I'm not in any mood to hear from God. <laughs> I love that. Elisha gets a word from the Lord. And the word of the Lord, just projecting, we'll finish this story next week. The word of the Lord comes. And the word of the Lord is, no. Matter of fact, number one, you're going to have water in the morning. And it won't rain. It's not going to be from rain. It's not going to rain. But you're going to come out and look in the morning. There's going to be water. And number two, you're going to beat these guys. And that's not even the end of the story. This has been the second talk on Second Kings, and we've only begun to tell this story. Join me next time for the continuation of the adventures of Elisha, the prophet. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.